Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Starting to remind people once again that like these crafts don't have to just be aesthetics. They can have much more meaning behind them. Art and craft are not distinct from one another. They are very much a part of one another. So I think that um, kind of bringing the art and the meaning back into um, traditional crafts um, is something that kind of gives it more power and also um, allows us to find that power in ourselves. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hi, Mom. How are you today? Hi, Emma. Good afternoon. I realize it's already afternoon. We were supposed to meet this morning. But something came up that I had to attend to very quickly. What happened? Well, the hay farmer next door, he came over to tell me that the time has come to spray the field that's next door to us where we walk almost daily. We call it the meadow, but it's that's romanticizing it a little bit. It's actually a hay field, but it's beautiful and it's wide open and we get to enjoy the seasons as the as the grass grows up. Um, he doesn't spray very often, but it has gotten to the point where there's there's stuff in it that's not good for the hay and it's affecting his harvest and the time has come when it's necessary for him to do that. And so it's a broad herbicide and he says we need to stay out of there for a couple of days and he's going to try to do it so that the wind blows in the other direction <laughs> i mean i understand but i was left with thinking gosh what can i do there's really nothing i can do except um i ran over there with a shovel and a few buckets and i spent a good bit of time um riding around over there in the gator and trying to spot wildflowers and seedlings and any negative thing that we could rescue and bring over here and put on our property so that it could continue to thrive and in that way sort of preserve what has evolved over there over the last or probably had been sprayed in like seven to ten years so wow that's really interesting and that's really cool that you were able to do that that he gave you the heads up right so it's an interesting predicament because it, it sort of draws a picture of um, the tension between 
conventional agriculture and regenerative agriculture, which we talk about a lot. Um, if you didn't spray, then these things would continue to grow out there. These wildflowers, these native things, things that the livestock actually are not supposed to eat. One of them, unfortunately, is milkweed. There's a lot of milkweed over there and the livestock can't eat it. It's, it makes them sick. So they're trying to get rid of milkweed, but it's sort of common knowledge that milkweed is the one thing that monarch butterflies feed on and reproduce on. It's the only plant. And the elimination of milkweed, because of this very issue, because it's not good for grazing animals, has seriously affected the worldwide monarch butterfly population, which is really um, a big deal because monarchs are a really important pollinator and they're an important link in our food system. So th there you have it. <laughs> there you have the conundrum. And it's interesting because we just finished reading Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, the book by Robin Wall Kimmerer for our uh, book club in the almanac and I bet um, since that book is fresh on both you uh, both of our minds yeah I'm certainly thinking about it I'm sure you thought about oh that, yes uh, in this whole thing so can you tell me about that and how you related it to to sort of what you've just read and how that's floating around in your head braiding sweetgrass and Robin Wall Kimmerer were very very much on my mind this morning because there were so many parts of that book that resonated so deeply with me about um, trying to reconcile what's what's been done over the years, what has happened to the land, to the soil, and to our health and our relationship to nature and the health of the planet, and subsequently, you know, our food and, and our clothing and all these products that we use, um, it's all it's all connected. So I thought about that and I thought about her reflections on how we move forward standing in this contradiction. Like if, if you are fortunate enough to understand what the issues are, but you don't have the power or the influence um, or the leverage to really do much. Like I can't tell the hay farmer next door not to spray. It's it's not a right of mine. I can't tell him not to do what he needs to do to make his living. And I can't tell the landowner what he needs to do with his land. But I can go over there and save whatever plants I can find with his permission, which I got. I got some some wild persimmon trees. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. And there's a pond not in the field, but next to the field, there's a pond and I got permission from the owner to go over there and get some um, water lilies. You did a full on plant rescue mission. I was, I was, <laughs> um, dad helped me. He was driving the gator and a SWAT team. Yeah. I would say stop and I would jump out and, you know, dig it up. And so anyway, that's the story. And it's all very, very much overlapping with what we've been doing um, in the almanac the last few weeks, um, studying the yeah. concept and the theme of cultivate and sort of uh, came together last night in our book club discussion of the, the book Braiding Sweetgrass. This is all about this. Yeah, I feel very, very moved by the whole thing, very humbled. You know, I don't feel angry. I don't feel, I, I really do not feel judgmental. Because I understand, I understand where all this is, understand where everyone is coming from. Yeah. I do feel grief and I feel sadness, um, but I also have hope and faith that the land will recover. It will recover, but, you know, just going to take time. So that's my story of this morning. So, you know, speaking of the almanac where we've been sort of, immersed in this issue together as a community. Um, we are at a point where we're opening up um, our enrollment for the new season coming up, summer. Yes, thrive. We're thriving this summer. 
I noticed that um, here at the, as summer is reaching its peak, the solstice is this weekend, just the, the absolute burst of life outside, just things are thriving and growing and it is just amazing, you know? Yeah. Some of the things out there just are growing overnight. Some some things you want to grow and some things you don't. <laughs> it really does feel like summer is bursting. Well, let's get to introducing to this week's episode. We're really excited about it. Yeah. Miss Christy Johnson. Christy's mission as both an artist and a teacher is to break through the lies we tell ourselves about our own creative capabilities so that we can better access our abilities to transform. She teaches embroidery and textile arts for the imperfect human, for the visionary who wants to transform their dreams into textural designs on fabric through the art of embroidery. She has a book coming out in just a few days. It's called Mystical Stitches. And it comes out on June 22nd. And she also has an online course called Magic Threads that is coming out at the end of June, or it's opening up in the end of June. Something I really love about this conversation was how she evokes kind of a communion and a connection with the plant world and the natural dye world and the world of textiles and hands-on and all of those things to help us create a connection with nature and our surroundings. That I think is what's going to lead eventually to the more healing practices in agriculture and awareness of things that are less harmful to the environment, um, things that we can do better and doing so with an awareness and a connection with nature that um, it feels like it's been sort of disrupted over the last couple of generations. So the conversation with Christy just felt like a healing of all of that and a path. And I just thought it was delicious. <laughs> so Christy Johnson, if you don't follow her already, she's Christy J on Instagram, and she is a delight to both follow and engage with. And um, we learned so much in this episode and we loved chatting with her about pretty much all the things we love to talk about, sustainable fashion and natural dyeing and art. And uh, we hope you enjoy this conversation. So I, um, I've always loved clothing. My sister um, studied fashion design. She's 12 years older than me. So I was like six years old and she was going to college and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I loved her books. Um, I loved her clothes, the clothes that she was making. And so I ended up um, following in her footsteps and studying fashion. Um, and after about like seven years, I think working in the fashion industry, I was just like, oh, this is this is not the same as clothes. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of like, I, I, I love clothes. I don't like fashion um, as an industry. And as um, I don't, I don't like manufacturing um, or I don't, you know, sometimes manufacturing needs to happen. It just wasn't something that I was good at managing, sure. <laughs> yeah. which yeah. is essentially what you're doing when you're working in fashion, you're managing, um, managing manufacturing. So that's um, kind of a little bit of my background. So then I just decided to kind of figure out what other ways that I could work with clothes that wasn't outside of the range of fashion as an industry. And now your thing is? So yeah, so I started a, um, I didn't, it's like at this point, it's taken on so many forms that I just call it my textile studio, but it's called yeah. mixed, mixed Color is the name of it. Um, and it is a very um, kind of umbrella brand of all of the things I do, which some of the, um, I still make clothes, um, one of a kind pieces usually out of scraps or fabrics that I've collected over, over the years. Um, and I also create um, hand embroidered, I, I do hand embroidery on vintage. I also create hand embroidered talismans so people can sew their own, um, sew a patch talisman into their own clothes. Um, I also teach workshops. Um, I have online courses, um, educating people on these different techniques for embroidery, um, for um, patchworking. So yeah, a lot of different sort of educational plus um, one of a kind works and always handmade. And is this always, um, you kind of mentioned a little bit of your your journey 
career-wise, like, has this been your job or did were you working other jobs before this? Or, and is this what you do full-time? Um, yes, this is what I do full-time. I, um, I worked, I, I, def- I worked basically only for um, other fashion companies, but then um, in 2014 or 2015, I moved to New York City to study at the Textile Arts Center. Um, I, w- I had an artist residency there um, and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. It's for there to be like a location for all this textile stuff. Um, and when I was in New York City, I worked for a number of different um, artists who had their own business. So um, Doug Johnston was one of them. He makes the big rope bowls. Um, and so kind of that was a beautiful part where I got to learn how we can work still um still in some sort of like artists kind of fashion adjacent um communities but but working for people who um decide on their own time you know he doesn't work with seasons he doesn't he kind of works on his own time and works within his own art as well like his business and his art kind of merged they weren't separate and so that 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 was really nice and also I worked with um Emily Fisher at Haptic Lab um and she makes quilts she makes quilt coats um and again, another just amazing artist where their art was also their business um, and kind of getting a feel for that. Cool. And then eventually you were like ready to start your own and kind of birthed it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And cool. I, I wanted it to be like a collection of clothing at first. And then I realized I was like, oh, now I'm just the manufacturer. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I got more into education because I, it was just part of what I did anyways, when I was making these, um, handmade clothing and naturally that I had clothing, I had a lot of questions about how I made it. And I realized like that was so much more fun for me than continuing to, um, produce and manufacture things. It was so much more fun for me to share the process, um, and get yeah. other people working in the process. Yeah. Which is really cool because that's kind of what you were attracted to in the first place right. is like, yeah, the, the kind of the soul of the thing instead of like you described earlier, how fashion, the industry isn't really clothes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like everything else besides clothes. Yeah. So if we could say that your work revolves around hand stitching, embroidery, tell us, talk to us about how it connects us with humans across time and culture. Right. Um, I feel like the more I research the history of textiles and the history of clothing, the more I'm like, wow, we are just really, I mean, we are just surrounded with this material that took, that used to take literally like, you know, 70% of our waking hours to process and create. Um, And so I think it's just one of those things where, um, you know, if I'm searching, if I'm searching for something on the internet, like I'm not connecting, (laughs) there's, there's no ancestral connection there, you know, (laughs) right? or if I'm, you know, but when we start to, I feel like when we start doing these sort of like hand processes, like sewing and stitching, um, I feel like I'm connected to a lineage of people where that was the only way that you were able to, um, you know, have something or have something fixed was to do it yourself. I mean, you could, I'm sure there were, um, you know, situations where some people were better than others and within a village, but for the most part, people did all of their textile work within their home. They, a lot of, um, if you look into the history, a lot of homes that they have discovered um, in various archaeological sites, like they're, you know, they're, the the uh, loom is on the wall in the living room, you know, next to the fireplace. Um, and all of these different things were like the, the, the creation of textiles was in the house, it was in the home. It was not this like offsite manufacturing thing. Um, and I also feel like stitching was, I mean, stitching embroidery takes a lot of time. And so we, we can start to understand how much power it has. The, the fact that somebody would spend, you know, 100, 200 hours heavily embroidering these pieces, it wasn't just for, for aesthetic reasons. They had kind of deeper meanings to them. And I think when we start to do that ourselves, we can start to recognize like, oh, wow, this does actually feel really powerful. And this does feel like it has more meaning behind just the visual um, concept of it. So. Well, if you think of of textiles and clothing as one of our fundamental, you know, everyday needs, you know. Yeah. Food, clothing, food, shelter. Clothing, shelter. shelter. Right. And, and before everything was all industrialized, you know, humans had to provide for a very long time before all of us sitting here today had to provide these things for themselves. So it's like an integral part of life. Mm-hmm. And we've completely lost sight of that because it's, uh, I like the phrase you used, it's off-site. It's right. out of sight, out of mind. We just go. We just uh, participate in commerce. We just go pick it go up and somewhere. buy it. <laughs> yeah. 
Or have it sent to us. Totally. Now, appears on your doorstep. Yeah. <laughs> With a couple of clicks. <laughs> like 24 hours later in some cases. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did that even happen? It wow. kind of reminds me of food too, where like when yeah. I, like the process of growing your own food where you're like, wow, this is even just like growing some herbs on the countertop. You're like, oh, wow. I just watched this thing grow from this tiny little seed and it tastes just like the herbs in the cabinet <laughs> that I used to get from the grocery store. You know? Or better, honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, so much better and like as a person who you know grew up in a household where like my, my mom's very much like I don't want to see dirt on my food <laughs> she's like I know it. she's like I know it came from the dirt I just don't want to see it which is hilarious to me um <laughs> but that was sort of you know like picking my first carrot out of the ground I was like whoa this is absolutely wild <laughs> yeah and you know um I grew up in the era when convenience foods were first coming on the scene like we're talking about the 60s and 70s and they were just it was like the greatest thing to have instant this or instant that or uh, you know um i always use the example of suddenly salad the pasta salad in the box all the the flavorings and everything in it wow um so that was that was my era and we just thought that was the greatest thing and then somehow i was in the very early adulthood I was probably like in my first apartment or something and started baking and doing some things and I remember having that aha moment like I was kneading bread and I thought this is cool I mean people have been doing this for a long long time and when I'm kneading this bread around it's like I have something in common with them so that was my first little glimmer of, of that you know having grown up in a totally different era so what you're describing with the stitching I think is a very similar thing um yeah humans have had their own in-home industry since the very beginning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you only hand stitch or do you machine sew as well I machine sew too yeah Okay. Yeah. And what's the how? What's the differentiator? Like, when do you just? Dis- is it d- solely design, like for embroidery and stuff, or? Um, I do. I also do um, use machine stitching for um, for embroidery work as well. Just like do okay. for doing applique. Um, okay. But mostly, it's mostly a matter of time. Like if I'm like, okay, yeah, if I'm like, I want this done, I, you know, I'm, I can be a little bit, which is odd because I work with embroidery, but I can be a little bit impatient with the work that I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sometimes if I'm like, I, I kind of want this done like tonight, then, <laughs> <laughs> then I'm probably going to like applique the fabric on and then do some hand stitches on top of it. Um, okay. But other, t- other times I'm just like, I'm okay with this taking absolutely forever. Uh, <laughs> and I just, want to like sit in front of the couch on on, by the fire and I don't want to involve any machines and I just kind of want to you know hang out quietly then then I'll do um, hand embroidery so yeah depends on my level of urgency well also I like the fact that um, you can give yourself grace to do whatever feels right in the moment and not think oh this has to be hand stitched because yeah Totally. No, I think that's, that's something that I've definitely had to kind of like train myself out of like, no, I, I just do embroidery. And it's like, I, 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 to the same degree, I think like when we're looking back kind of ancestrally, like if, if we can find technology that works faster for us, like by all means, let's use it. But mm-hmm. as, but like, it's still okay to be connected with the, with the technology uh, or with the kind of pre-technology um, ideas. So, yeah. Don't you think the important thing is like not forgetting Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. Forgetting what it takes and totally. what you, you said about, about the hand stitching, the clothes, the, the, the one, one at a time pieces. pieces. People have no concept like, the, you know, the time involved and the investment of energy and, and materials. And so I think, and, and you're interested in education, we're interested in education, demonstrating to people this, this is what it is and you can participate you know, to whatever degree feels right to, to you as an individual, individual. But, but, but this is, this is what this is. Yeah. 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 I love that. And that's, yeah, I, I mean, it all kind of, all of textiles start with, uh, with spinning the fibers and that's something that I've tried. It's like, I don't, I don't feel the need to spin the fibers, weave, right. the, you know, weave the fabric. Right. And I've tried both of those things. And so I have an understanding just by, you know, spinning one piece of yarn and being like, wow, that took forever and looks horrible (laughs) and is breaking (laughs) and you know all of a sudden had like a much sort of stronger appreciation for anybody who is able to do that and for the fact that we have you know been able to modernize technology that it can create these spun you know these beautifully spun tech um threads (laughs) yarns yeah well even too in this um 
for those listening, I'm currently taking a quilting class and Christy is a teacher there and she just taught us in this past class. Um, and if you sew, you probably know about this, but if you cut fabric, you know, just like an inch or so, and then you can, you can basically rip it and it rips perfectly in a straight line, which is because of the way that the, um, this is woven fabric. So it's the way that the, the warp and the weft and it's just the way that it's woven together. Like it was not until that like visceral experience of ripping something, seeing the little frayed ends and like how they all fit together. Even just doing that is like, you can kind of see how things are constructed and it makes you think tearing things apart. You can see, you know, putting it back together. It's like, I don't, I don't think we do enough of that either now. Like if something's broken in the olden days, you would like take it apart and (laughs) put it back together. But now you just like get another one on Amazon. (laughs) So um, I guess the point of that being it's a, it's a, it's a combination of like knowing how something's made. um, Maybe not necessarily if you're, you made it, but also appreciating you can fix something. Hi, this is Mary. I just wanted to pop in here and share something with you that I'm pretty excited about. Just the other day, I got the refills of all of my favorite plain products, the shampoo, conditioner, face moisturizer, and body lotion. Let me tell you what makes this so unique. There was no plastic in the package, not in the products or the packaging. Lindsay and Allison Delaplane, the founders of Plain Products, have come up with an amazing system for helping you and me towards our zero waste goals. First of all, the bottles and even the caps are aluminum. When your first bottle's running low, all you do is order a refill and let them know you need a return label at checkout. Then when the refills arrive, you just switch your reusable pump over to the new bottle and use the return label to send the empty bottles back to them in the box where it will be cleaned, refilled, and reused. Isn't that cool? We absolutely love a company that will go to this extent to help us reduce our plastic consumption. And at the same time, we really understand what a challenge that is in today's economy to make that work. And don't let me get away without telling you how much we actually love the products. Vegan, sulfate-free, silicone-free, synthetic-free, blended with whole essential oils, biodegradable. It's all amazing. We love plain products at Lady Farmer, and we are so excited to offer you 20% off your next purchase of plain products. That's P-L-A-I-N-E products with the code LADYFARMER at checkout. Try them out and see how much you can love a company for their products and their practices. Thank you, plain products. For all that you do and now back to Christy right totally and understanding uh, you know like yeah just understanding the composition of something um, yeah is really kind of gives you so much more information on how to use that then so even going back before the spinning of the thread or the yarn or whatever is we like to take people all the way back to the, the plant the, the seed, seed. And the soil that the seed is in and bring consciousness to the fact that, um, you know, this needs to be good soil, the good dirt. dirt. Mm. And it's amazing how much it takes to get from not only seed to the plant, but plant to the usable fiber. Like that in and of itself is a universe of process. Right. Right. And there's a a huge forgetting or amnesia about the fact that um, most of our clothes, not most of them, but a good many of our clothes come from plants. A good many of them come from animals as well. Mm-hmm. But the, the the source of those and the conditions and all of that is just so important to our well-being and the earth's well-being. And this is just all part of the really fun thing we're doing in talking to people and talking about it. And it, it's just, gosh, it's great. It's, it's wonderful to see people go, oh, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Well, and I recently was, you know, was looking up, I was um, researching some linens, uh, linen fabric and kind of the, the manufacturing of it. And I was like, oh, wait, linen comes from flax, which is the yes. same plant that flax, got, you know, I mean, obviously, but you know, it's like, yeah. like well, flax seeds. Flax seeds. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow, this, you know, this, um, this crop had to have been so valuable. And it's like, and reading about the process of it and you have to, you have to dry it first and then you get the seeds from it and then you have to wet it and it has to stay wetted until the piece is rot and the deteriorates the pectin. And it's just this like, and we haven't even gotten to the spinning yet, you know, and we're already right. like two months in the process. <laughs> Do you know about um, nettle 
as a fiber? I don't, I mean, I know that it's used as a fiber. I think, I think it's processed in the same way, but I haven't yes. ever seen it. Like I, ha- I, yeah. I want so badly to actually feel what nettle fabric feels like. Yeah. I think that because you're, you do some herbalist, herbal stuff too, don't oh, yeah. you? Yeah. I feel like that'd be like so up your alley. We actually have someone in our community who makes nettle lace. She wow. spins, she spins the fiber and then like sews it or what do you call lace making? Does like, she do bobbin la- like lace making? Yeah. 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 She does lace out of nettle. It's so beautiful. I'll have to connect you guys. It's yes, really incredible. For sure. And the other thing that's crazy about nettle is that like I just heard about that it's a fiber. You are a textile artist and like you know about it, but you've never seen it. Like why – how have we got like why isn't it more widely used? I don't know. There's probably a good reason, but it feels like there's this. It's like this secret in nature that's being kept from us because because it's there's other things that more people can profit off of easier. Than right. I like nettle's way too easy. Just yeah. it's you know just go it's out. A weed. Yeah, it is totally <laughs> a weed. But, but um, before, before we get into the plant thing, thing I, I wanted to circle back. back a minute to about the flax. I just received in the mail over the weekend my flax seed. So I'm going to try planting a patch of it this spring. I think you have to plant it in March around here, so I better get busy. But just a small patch and grow it and just play around with that process you just described. Um, just so, I mean, you know, and I can and document it and everything and show people what we're doing. But just for that very thing, like this, you know, everybody loves linen and this, this is what goes into it. And there's there's not not much much linen. linen. I don't know how much linen is produced in the United States. I don't think. Hardly any. Yeah. We've, we've looked. Most of it is like Northern Europe and so forth, forth. but it's 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 really wonderful, sustainable fiber. It doesn't need a lot of chemical inputs. And so we, we would all do well to become more acquainted with linen and where it comes from in the process and, and wearing it and it's good against your skin and as everybody knows it's a great fabric but anyway uh, talk to us about in your experience the intersection between your love for plants and herbs and your art and the magic and alchemy that you describe that goes into your work yeah so um yeah I mean I like I said I grew up with um Without really, I mean, my mom bought her plants at Home Depot and we put them in the ground. Like very rarely did we grow anything from, I don't think we ever grew anything from seed. Maybe like threw some grass seed down where probably just bought sod and put the sod on top. (laughs) So so even just the process of watching something grow from seed. I mean, conceptually, I understand this is how things work. Like this wasn't, you know, this isn't like mind blowing science, but watching something grow from a seed to a plant that then flowers, makes fruit. The fruit has a seed. You save that seed and you can grow that next year. (laughs) That for me was just like, it's one of those things where it seems so obvious, but to actually watch it happen and, and to, um, to become a part of that and to save the seeds and to bring them out next, you know, now basically or in April and um, put them back in a pot and be like, I, you know, I could, I I could never buy seeds for this plant again. Um, That I think is, is a sort of like, I mean, it's like nature's alchemy um, in the way that yeah. it, it just it c- continues to continues to produce and continues to um, some plants, for instance, garlic, like continue to adapt to the soil that they're grown in. So, you know, our, our garlic is going to gr- grows better and better every year. I think that's so beautiful. Um, and also just what that teaches us about like things kind of needing to die and, th- you know, that being a part of the process um, and not being things not necessarily always working out. Um, I think that's also really important to understand and being, you know, going, okay, what did we do wrong here? Um, you know, this year we got more rain and it, it, the whole process of growing plants really starts to help attune us to, um, different parts of nature um, and and how they all kind of influence one another. And we start to kind of understand these greater concepts, I feel like a little bit better. So, and then also growing, um, like you were talking about growing flax, when you start to understand what goes into something, um, then you look at that like $40 a yard linen and you're like, well, yeah, duh, it's $40 a yard. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, that's a good deal. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And you start to kind of have a little bit more appreciation for that. And to the same degree, when you find something like, you know, let's say you find a, um, you know, bathing suit that is 
$2.99 or something at H&M. And you're like, how in the world did somebody sew that? You know, obviously if it's, if it's a bathing suit, it's most likely polyester, but like you've got the fibers, we've got somebody that's sewn it. It's been shipped somewhere. We're paying other people in the process. Like how did this happen for $2.99? It's just like almost like almost offensive to me. Yeah. Well, the answer to that question is it did not cost $2.99. Right. It just didn't. And, and you know, we could ask that question a lot, you know, like what these sustainable brand pants are $200, but I can get a, a pair of pants that looks just like it for 20. Why would I buy the ones um, for $200? And we say, because those pants didn't cost $20. Mm-hmm. And you need to understand where along the line others are paying either yes. our environment, environment or human beings, beings yep. certainly. Um, there is a cost out there. It might not be to the end consumer, and that's by design. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's designed. designed that the end consumer doesn't have to pay much because that way they'll want a lot mm-hmm. and they will want more. Yeah. So this is how it works, folks. <laughs> yeah. I think and a, a friend of mine has put it really well where she said, you know, if you're buying a $20 dress, somebody somewhere is not getting paid for their labor. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that for me is like, I think that puts it so well where it's who's getting, you know, the who's getting shafted in this situation um, and how hidden is, how out of view is that to us? Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, by design, you know. So there's a quote And I can't think of the book where I got this, but I'll find out and put it in the show notes. Cheap is never a bargain. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And we have a whole culture, and I grew up in it, of shopping for entertainment. And, you know, it was like the hunt, hunting for the good buy, hunting for the bargain, hunting for, hey, this is is a good price. Right. Um, but who is it a good price for? And, and you yeah. think, well, it's a good price for me because, um, you know, I I can't afford the more expensive things. But really, it's not a good price for you because it, it hurts everybody. It hurts mm-hmm. the whole world. It hurts your environment. It hurts. And in many, many times, it hurts your health, the stuff that this cheap stuff is made out of. Mm-hmm. So it's all a part of just becoming aware and informed and, and knowing these things because yeah. people don't know what they don't know. Yeah. So. Totally. And I think, yeah, I think it's good to point out that like, you know, it's been, it's been designed so that you don't see the backside of it. You know, these, Mm -hmm. the whole industry has been designed so that you don't sort of do any research on that. And there's a lot of, um, a a lot of it's hidden. Like I used to work for a company who manufactured in China. Um, and we, I took a trip to China took, and I was like, oh, cool. I can actually see like where the things are manufactured. I was like, no, you get to see the offices. And then there yes. are people who work with the menu with the different manufacturers. It's like very intentionally, everything is offsite somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. And it just was this really abstract thing for me, especially recognizing, you know, I would be in a meeting with 10 other people and I'm like, okay, I'm the lowest on this chain of command. So this three hour meeting that we just had cost us, you know, doing quick math, like a few thousand dollars for, you know, this, this three hour meeting. And meanwhile, we are trying to figure out how we can get this $50 dress down to $40. Uh, it's like, well, A, we can stop having these meetings uh, <laughs> and just pay the person who's sewing it a little more money. Um, so that's, I don't know, his first guess here. And like, I know it's more complicated. Yeah. Strategist. Totally. It's more complicated than that. I think that company even ended up maybe, they, I think they went bankrupt or went close to bankrupt and it was kind of not a shock to me. Um, yeah. Just based on the, it just felt like a lot of wasted time. Yeah. Trying to figure out how to get things cheaper. So. Wow. Yeah. Geez. Well, I mean, we could we could talk for all day about this kind of stuff. But um, back to you and your work. I love looking at all the different things that you do and that you work on. And um, I just recently found your Stitch Wish talismans. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah. So Stitch Wish talismans are these small patches. Um, they're about three by three, and each of them are embroidered with different symbols. Um, and they are most of the t- many of them are dyed with natural dyes. Some of them are just uh, leftover fabrics that I have, and I've, I've worked with whatever color they already had on them. But um, 
So the whole idea of them is that they are these talisman that you would sew into to a garment to kind of set an intention. So um, the best way I've heard a talisman described is as kind of, it's like a vessel for whatever you wish to infuse into it. Um, and I think it really, having them dyed with botanicals supports that. And I try and choose different plants that um, that kind of emphasize whatever the um the symbolism is. So I have one, for example, where it's like flowers and an overflowing um, vase, um, like a flowing over with water. And that one's dyed with marigolds. And it's, that one's called overflow. And it's meant to kind of embody this like um, abundance, uh, abundance of love and abundance of nature. Um, and then, so they, each talisman comes with a needle and thread so that you can, they're already embroidered, you get them embroidered, but the needle and thread are so that you can sew them into your own garment. Part of the idea too is the idea of reuse, the idea of reinvigorating what we already have. So if you've got like, let's say you have a shirt or something that has like maybe a flaw on it or a sweater with a hole in it, you can patch it up with that. And it, it turns this flaw into something more meaningful um, and allows us to sort of revive the garments that we do have. Um, or you can just put it, sew it into something that you own. For me, um, they turn into this sort of like constant reminder for you. So when I see this talisman that I've sewn on the inside of the sweater, every time I take the sweater on and off, um, I'm reminded that that is my intent. Like, okay, I'm, you know, I've been working towards this. It serves as this constant reminder. And I think that images have a way of speaking to um, sort of our subconscious, speaking between our conscious and our subconscious minds in a way that words don't necessarily do. Um, images are, they are the first things that we, um, as a species, learn to communicate with one another with, um, you know, like, like pre, pre-human eras, um, imagery is what we use. Um, and to the same degree, you know, if we are in another country, um, and you're trying to communicate with somebody where there's a language barrier, imagery always works. Um, you know, like the, the, the hand sign of the stop cross or the walk sign of the stop cross, all these, these image-based things where we're, we're able to immediately understand them. And to the same degree, when we are children, we first are able to express ourselves through images. Um, so I think they kind of, they predate words both um, historically and in our own lives and our own existence. And so I think that that, become, that can become a really powerful way to um, sort of access that. That's so beautiful. Did you come up with these or does this exist somewhere else in culture or another culture? Um, they There are some instances here and there. Um, I, yeah. none that I, only that I had found kind of after, um, after starting this, but you know, th- th- there are mm-hmm. some, I was told of a, I, I don't know how precise this is, but yeah. somebody who's yeah. been studying Buddhism. And I think at some point he had to like create, hand sew his own robe. Um, and mm. part of the, part of it, um, part of the hand sewing was, um, to put like what was basically like a tree symbol on the back of it. Um, and he had described that as a sort of talisman. Um, and so I think there are certain, there's a lot of different, um, cultural things where symbols that are embroidered into things that, um, infuse that piece with that meaning. Um, and yeah. a, a lot of like traditional embroidery is definitely full with symbolism. Um, and it's usually much heavier. It's not like one symbol that you put on the back of a tree. It is like the entire garment is covered in stitches, you know, like if you look at the wedding dresses from the Siwa Oasis um, in Northern Africa, it's like, these are just incredibly elaborate, elaborately um, created pieces. um, And each, each element of it has its own symbolism to it. So I think that, yeah, it's definitely something that like historically um, is pretty strong, like throughout cultures. Yeah. I love that idea, though, of turning it into something that you can apply to like, your everyday yeah a little bit of that into your currently existing I'm wondering does it help you like when you take something off does it help you remember to like hang it up instead of like put it on the pile right (laughs) I feel like that would help me do that that's my problem yeah just put it here but if I like see the thing I'm like oh I'll take care of (laughs) (laughs) totally yeah definitely definitely basically the talisman were predated by all of the hand embroidered vintage that I was doing Mm-hmm. Um, but I, they just by the nature of a hand embroidered vintage piece, like they were kind of expensive. Um, and so I wanted to be able to offer something a little bit more accessible um, for people who maybe wanted a hand embroidered garment, but like also vintage is very specific. Each piece is very specific and fit. Um, and so it allowed it to be accessible in many different ways. Um, and so being able to offer those so that you could choose exactly where your embroidery went. And that was the initial um 
kind of concept of a lot of these hand embroidered vintage garments was I would put the garment on and sort of be like, okay, what, you know, the, these clothes, these vintage clothes, they have histories, they have pasts. And I feel like, I feel like the fibers kind of absorb that. And, and it felt like, you know, I might have an idea for what would look cool on the back of that jacket. But then when I put that jacket on, it was like the jacket had a whole nother idea for <laughs> what life it wanted to uh, be reborn into. <laughs> so that's so cool. I want to go back to what you were saying about the the images speaking to your subconscious. Mm. We have a a long history in in humanity that was pre-literacy. That was before people actually began to read. In fact, it was longer than post-literacy, post when people started reading. And I'm not going to try to do dates here because I'll mess it up. But, <laughs> but yeah, like relatively, we haven't really been reading that long. Exactly. And so the brain, the, the brain is largely evolved to communicate through symbols, just like what you're saying. Mm. So when we're in, in sort of bringing back this, this ancient, ancient mode of communication, we're really pulling in our ancestral associations and I found that super exciting and healing yeah and accessing a part of our our very very deep selves that that get all buried in in all of this industrial patriarchal systems yeah um the very cognitive activity of reading and imbuing symbolic language or uh, symbols into meaning, um, but involves a certain part of the brain that um, we tend not to use as much in this culture. It's really sort of facilitating our wholeness. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's, I, I think that's really important because we feel like we've, you know, we've come so far as uh, a species, we've evolved so much. But when we think about the rate yes. that evolution happens, we have, yeah. I, I think, our, our um, sort of day to day experience has is completely unnatural to where we are in our own species evolution. This is, this is the reason like we get scared of things and we act as though there is literally like a bear chasing us uh, when we experience fear and anxiety, because that is pretty relevant to our brains. We haven't, we haven't evolved much for much further past that. Um, just like the way that we take on weight and things like that have evolved from a system of like, well, if we are starving ourselves, our body's going to figure out a way to put more weight on, you know, like, like all of, I, I guess I'm just saying like all of these different ways that our body responds to things um, in a way that seems really counterproductive. It's because it was really productive, you know, a thousand years ago. How long have we been? It was like 50,000 years or something like that. I don't, yeah, like you said, shouldn't put a date on it. But. <laughs> well, <laughs> probably wrong. <That's, laughs> I don't know. It's exactly true. And it's really helpful to look at that. Um, and somewhere we have a, a timeline or a graph that that shows this, like, I've heard it referred to as our ancient bodies, you know, um, our species of humans, Homo sapiens has been around for about 200,000 years, maybe a little more. I mean, you see different numbers, but if, if you, you know, put that on a clock and you, the whole 200,000 years where, you know, we did fire and wheels and whatever, and then you, <laughs> you get to the very end, you know, like the very last few seconds or whatever, that's when like, it, uh, you know, you have the industrial revolution and, and, and electricity and mass production and all this kind of thing. So to our bodies, our, and our nervous systems, all this stuff is so, so new. Mm-hmm. And and how can we? How are we supposed to adapt to all this stimulus if, if our, our bodies, bodies just are just being slammed with it all the time? And so you know we have all this you know exhaustion and disease and, and all, all this kind of stuff. stuff. And really, when you kind of look at it that way, it's no surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to we want to honor our ancient bodies and our ancient brains, really. And like you say, like when when um, sitting at a stops light and being worried about being late for your carpool pickup or whatever it is, is the same as being chased by a, some sort of predator animal, then, you know, you need to stop and think about this. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Or, you know, in those certain like sort of um, tribal mentalities where we're yes. like, oh, if I offend somebody, like I might not eat, you know, <laughs> like, right. that's, like that's where our minds go. We're like, I can't upset this person because then I might get kicked out of the community and then I'm just going to be out into out in the woods like fending for myself. <laughs> exactly. That's how our brain works. And we, we just don't think about that. And it's so true. 
And so yeah. this is like, no wonder I'm a people pleaser. It was literally a life or death situation, you know, 2,000 years ago. <laughs> so, so true. true. See, See, I, I never, thought, I never, I had never thought, thought of that one. one. That's brilliant. <laughs> Survival tactic. Yeah. <laughs> I just love the way you imbue this um, this ancient way of communication of, of ideas and emotions and, and meaning. Yeah. It's just something we wear every day. Talk about conscious clothing. Oh, oh my goodness. goodness. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you come up with these, um, with the symbols? Is it, are you drawing from something? It kind of reminds me of like tarot or something, or are you kind of making them, is it your artistic representation? Right. Yeah. No, definitely. I am very much inspired by tarot just because I've never, I had never before seen a, um, like, organized collection of images and and meanings sort of so um so beautifully laid out um and there's so many different decks that represent them in different ways um but that you know you have this one two by three inch piece of paper that is literally just overflowing with possibilities for that um so I definitely yeah tarot definitely helped me um kind of start to understand symbolism and start to understand how things have sort of overlapping meanings but uh, the actual symbols themselves are usually, um, yeah, it's usually a little more intuitive. And sometimes I work backwards and I, I sometimes I feel kind of like bad about this. Like, oh, I should know the meaning and design into the meaning. It's like, well, no, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of a, like a very like presumptuous way of working. Uh, a lot of the times I just will design something. And as the piece is processing, um, as I'm going from paper to fabric and choosing colors, I allow that to be um, like an intuitive selection process where, you know, for whatever reason, I'm like, oh, I don't know. For some reason, the vase wants to be purple. Um, we're going to make it purple now. And then as mm-hmm. I'm, you know, then I'm picking out the fabrics and it's like, oh, this would be great with this fabric dyed with black walnuts. And all of a sudden things start to kind of come together and start to make more sense as it builds up. And, you know, sometimes I'll change my mind and be like, okay, I, this actually would be better um, on a fabric dyed with um, pomegranate rinds instead or something. Mm-hmm. So there is sort of, um, it is sort of like a back and forth, like, conversation I'd say between um like a more intuitive design process um and also some like intellectual studying of symbols and then um and then yeah sometimes just like what what's whatever happens um in the dye pod or as you know sometimes even like if I run out of a certain color thread it's I'll be like oh well was not meant to be in that color so I guess I'm going to finish it off in this color you know and then that will <laughs> I'll allow that to influence the design so definitely some like kind of happenstance stuff is totally acceptable um as like as a reason for something to be a certain way for me. <laughs> That's so beautiful. And do you work with commissions? Like do you have people asking you to make them specific? I do. Yeah. I'm not as good with commissions, I think, because I work kind of fluidly like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I do need, I need like a lot of space in a commission, um, a lot of kind of freedom for that, but I have not been doing as many commissions because it does, it, it, it feels like, a lot more stressful for me mm-hmm. so you know again with the like I don't want to upset this person by not doing the right thing because then they might kick me out of the community and I might yeah the whole the whole are they the whole people pleasing thing yeah, I'm sure, sure gets really, really kicked in and they're you know are they going to feel like they got their money's worth exactly yeah oh I know like I know that stress a whole lot so, yeah. yeah so oh, it's the, the commission thing is very heavy for me I'm like oh it's a little bit it's it, there are some people you know like my best friend from elementary school she sent me something and I know that it's like I can put whatever I want on there and she'll love it um and then there's other projects where I'm just like I don't know this person that well and it's going to be much harder for me to kind of understand what they want or understand if they're getting what they want yeah it gets really stressful I have a good friend that's a painter and has explained the same, you know, described, described the right same thing. thing. Like, it's just like, oh my gosh, it's just the whole time you're just like, oh, is this right? And, yeah. Um, but your work is so highly intuitive that I would think your your real customers would get that whatever came of it was what was meant to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a certain, certain person to understand, understand that, that though. So. Yeah, I, I totally of, get it. Yeah, a lot of what I've done is like mailing to people in other places, so I don't get to see their reactions. So I'm like, I hope she liked it. <laughs> or, or, I hope he liked it. And that's that. I think not having that experience kind of removes me from it a little bit. But yeah, well, I've heard you speak about um, the way your work is seasonal, mm-hmm. and I I thought since since we are we talk all about slow living through the seasons and embracing the cycles of nature our audience would love to hear you talk about how you work with the seasons yeah definitely so like right now um we are in what in new york 
is early spring. Um, and so now it's kind of like, okay, I'm just starting to, you know, my creaky body's starting to move again and um, we're going to start planting things inside. Um, and so I'm starting to think more about natural dyes. I'm starting to think more about things that I can grow um, that I that I'll be using um, in the summer, but like all through, all through the winter, usually I focus heavily on embroidery. Um, and I, for me, it, that is because a, it's a lot easier to do sitting by the fire <laughs> and sort of like throwing logs on the fire. And I don't necessarily like working with natural dyes in the wintertime because I don't like having wet hands. I don't like having to deal with like having yards of fabric. I don't have places to dry it. Um, there's only so much room in the living room with the fireplace, you know, <laughs> like having yeah. dripping wet fabric isn't exactly ideal. So it definitely, between working with natural dyes and working with embroidery, um, I they, they do become seasonal. I still will go outside, like in the summertime, I go outside and I embroider in the yard but I'm also doing a lot more natural dyeing then um, because I that's the time of year I can harvest plants I can dye with fresh plants um, I can you know I'm weeding the garden it's like there's all this goldenrod just thrown in a dye pot and, you know <laughs> so have it being able to um, work in that way is definitely a big part of it oh that's definitely you know interesting to hear for people not only are we going for like just like embracing the seasons in our daily lives, but how you can do it in your work, you know, how you can do it in your livelihood or your uh, whatever. Um, yeah. It might be a little out of reach for a lot of people. I'm sure it is, but it's just something really wonderful to think about. And you certainly give a really good example of it. But I'm curious to know what plants you grow that you use as natural dyes. Cause I have, I have a natural dye garden myself and some luck, things and not so much with others. <laughs> yeah. So what, what do, do you grow? grow? Yeah. So I, um, I always grow marigolds. I love marigolds yeah. and that, you know, it's like they're, they're great in the garden anyways, um, next mm -hmm. to tomatoes. So it's like, yeah, I always have a bunch of marigolds. Um, this, uh, this year I started growing woad, which, um, takes a few, it takes a second year to seed. So, so, uh, or actually last year I started growing woad. So this year it should go to seed. Um, and then I can process that as a dye. We'll see. Um, I've grown weld, um, which hopefully has self-seeded and is coming back next year. I love weld as a dye. It just grows so fast um, and it, it um, winters really well. Um, and then what else? Indigo, um, Persicaria tinctoria, the Japanese indigo. Love growing that. It is not frost hardy. So I always have to remember to dig it up at the end of the year and bring some inside to seed, which I didn't do last year before the first frost. So now I have to buy seeds. Uh, <laughs> um, and then what else? I've got Coreopsis I love, Cosmos. So a lot of flowers. And I especially, Black Eyed Susan is another really beautiful one. I love working with dye flowers because, I'll, you know, I'll go outside for, you know, maybe 30 minutes each day or every other day and just harvest these flowers and leave them to dry. And just that experience of like snip, 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 you know, like picking flowers. It's just like so delightful. Um, and it is not, you know, I'll end up with maybe like a, like a two cups of flowers at the end of the season for some of them, <laughs> but it's still so worth it, just the experience. Do you do a fermentation vat with your homegrown in indigo? Do you make that yourself? I usually, when I do the fermentation vats, I usually just use um, powdered indigo because I've never yeah. really grown that much. I love with the, with the um, Persicaria tinctoria, I love doing the fresh leaf indigo. So you can just oh. mix it with, um, you just put it in a blender with ice water and you get like a nice like turquoise, sort of bright turquoise, greenish blue shade. But then what I will often do is I'll just add the leftover leaf to an indigo pot that I already have. So like a fermented oh. indigo pot that I already have, but you can process it on its own in the same way. But I, because I usually have one going, I just kind of like throw it in there <laughs> and just let it kind of set to the bottom as sediment and it, but it can, it continues to release. Yeah. Do your indigo vats, I mean, do you have one or several or do you find that you have to like redo them year after year or do they last or I'm just curious? Yes, I usually will pour off the top of it, you know, like in the spring uh, or I mean, sorry, uh -huh. in the fall, I'll kind of pour off the top of whatever's left. And so everything at the bottom is the indigo color. Um, and so the stuff on the top is all like the, um, I, I do a fructose um, and uh lime so it's like basically uh, calcium hydroxide and, and fructose and so that is kind of what is on the top and that gets poured off and so the indigo is left and then sometimes I'll let that dry and then just pour another one on top of like make another vat on top of it so in case you can't tell I've been playing around with 
indigo the last <laughs> year or so. Now. And, um, you know, it just doesn't always happen like the book says it's supposed right. to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I do a lot of experimentation and I've, and I've been through a lot of vats. I think more than I'm, than I should. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know, what, I don't no, know what's I'm, going on. Well, I also have, I usually have two different vats. And so I'll yeah. do one that is the fructose vat and another vat yeah. that is, um, that iron. is ferrous sulfate. Yeah. So it's yeah. iron and that's a little bit more um, aggressive on fabrics. So I don't, it's basically one that I'll use for cotton and the ferrous sulfate one I use for cotton oh. and the, uh, and the um, fructose one that I use for silks. Well, I don't want to go too far down the indigo rabbit hole. Maybe, maybe we can, can get, get back, back to that, that uh, like, like um, yeah, like, oh, a workshop or something. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm so, so glad, you know, so, so glad, glad to talk to someone about indigo. indigo. That's, That's fun. fun. Chrissy, can you tell us a bit about the craziness of last year and how 2020, if at all, had any impact on your work and your life? Yeah, I think just my um, lifestyle made made 2020 not as much of a shock for me because I am already pretty isolated. Um, and yeah, we're in a more rural place. So we have space, um, which was, has been amazing. Very super grateful for that. But I, um, 2020 was, I wrote my book last year. And so as we began, um, sort of, it was like, okay, clearly, you know, something's going on and we need to start locking down and we need to start, um, you know, not going out as much. And I, my book, the due date for the writing of my book was May. Oh, wow. Yeah. The end of May. So I was just like, I, I was like, I, I don't have the, t like, I, I need to finish this thing. I don't have the time to like, you know, think about, which was, I, I think it was great. I had something to kind of really focus on that whole time. Yeah. And I'm like stitching and just kind of like, I just got to be in the zone. Like I don't have, I don't have the, mm -hmm. um, sort of pleasure or not pleasure. The <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't have, yeah. whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. To like worry about what's happening. I was like, I just got to get this done. And luckily I'm in a space where I have, I, where what I'm doing isn't affected by it because I work out of my house. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was kind of, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, I'm, I'm glad that I have designed my life in this way, but that yeah. now, you know, it's getting to the point where it was like, oh, wow, we're, but we're like really isolated though. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, wow, we could really use some people around. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned that. Tell us about your book, isn't it? It's, I mean, at the time that this comes out, it might even already be out. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's coming out in May or June. Um, not sure. Um, I think the date may be changing. But it, so the book is called Mystical Stitches, Making Your Own Talisman for Personal Intentions and Magical Embellishments. Oh. Um, I may, may have gotten the subtitle wrong. <laughs> <mixed up this laughs> way. Um, but yeah, so it's basically it's an em embroidery book that also has, um, I think it's something like 50 pages of different symbols that I've embroidered. And it, it describes how they've been used in the past or how you could potentially use them um, in the future um, and it also kind of lays out how you can create a ritual for your own embroidery work um, and so the idea is just kind of really starting to remind people once again that like these crafts don't have to just be aesthetics they can have much more meaning behind them art and craft are not distinct from one another they are very much um, a part of one another so I think that um, kind of bringing the art and the meaning back into um, traditional crafts um, is something that kind of gives it more power and also um, allows us to find that power in ourselves I cannot wait for that book yeah it's gonna be great I'm so excited thank you <laughs> so, so Christy what does good dirt mean to you literally or metaphorically or both Okay. When I hear good dirt, I think of good compost. So I think of taking all, like, instead of taking stuff that has decayed and is rotting and is no longer of use to us and assuming that it has no meaning anymore, I think it's important to process it, um, you know, both physically in our, in our actual dirt <laughs> and also mm -hmm. in our own minds and kind of allowing, allowing the recognition of um, the power of of composting things and allowing the, the power of what what used to serve us to once again serve us in a, in a totally new and transformed way um whether that is like in the case of our garden our chicken poop yeah. <laughs> where it's all this waste that they have created that actually really nourishes the soil uh, or our you know vegetables that have gone rotten or didn't grow right and things of putting that back in um, and allowing it to feed next year's garden so yeah when I hear good dirt that's definitely what I think is how how can we take what we might think we no longer need and transform it into something that we can use? 
I love that too because, you know, a lot of times the term like as far as in your mind, like let go of what doesn't serve you is thrown around a lot. Just like let it go. Just like get rid of things that don't serve you, which is like really helpful. You do need to do that. But I've never thought about it like let it compost, like let it really break down, figure out like what's in there and what you can – um, how you can turn it into something that can serve you. That's really interesting. I like yeah, thinking about it like that. <laughs> totally. Especially because a lot of the times there's things that we're like, just get rid of it. It doesn't serve you. And I'm like, oh no, yeah. it just keeps coming back. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just like get rid of it. Totally. And it's like all of our experiences are fertile ground for mm. our next evolution or, or whatever, you know, a little bit of growth, you know, it all, it all, when you think about it, that's a good point, Emma, because like it's really popular to say that just, you know, let it go, let it go. But really all of our experience serves us if we let it, mm-hmm. if, if we, we choose to compost it. <laughs> I like yeah. this so much. Yeah, that's cool. Like that. <laughs> what, what a great, great thought thread. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Christy. I love that. So as we leave our listeners today, um, what is – is there anything, most of you have already said – everything um, that you most want people to understand about the work that you do? Um, yeah, I think, I guess what I would want people to most understand is that like, it, uh, it, it's all a process. Um, the process of creating something, the process of growing something, the process of designing something um, is all, it's all just information that we're gathering. And mm-hmm. when we, when we are going through our, our own creative processes and find us like if you're making something and you don't like the way it's turning out like instead of making that something personal and even with life again like once again with life when things are like when things are processing we don't like the way they're turning out we can use that as just information like this is information I can I can take this information this like don't like feeling doesn't have to be um I don't have to you know personify that that can just be okay I don't like this so like how can I how can I shift how can I move um and I guess that's, yeah, that's more, not so much about like my work, but more about that's why I make the work is because it is a constant process and a constant conversation um, between, you know, what's working and what isn't and being open to that um, sort of getting past ideas of the way that things need to be perfect and kind of moving into um, how can I continue to kind of yeah be in conversation with my experience um, and with what I'm making and allowing, yeah, allowing it to progress in a way that um, is on its own time and not on some predetermined timeline that I have decided it needs to be. So. <laughs> Thank you. I needed to hear that. I'm sure, I'm sure people listening yes. can relate. Yeah. It's so helpful. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of my lesson co- moving out of the fashion industry it was like, oh, wow, having your own timeline <laughs> where things just happen as they need to happen and not being forced. How freeing that is. Yeah. And how healing and oh, oh, yes. it just feels good. Feels good in my bones just <laughs> hearing that. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. I loved this conversation. I'm, Me too. I'm so inspired on so, so many nice. levels. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much, Mary and Emma. This has been wonderful. I'm so grateful for this conversation and, um, As we said, the Almanac is currently open for just a couple more days for summer enrollment. Closes June 21st. Join us and check out Christy's book on the 22nd and her online course, Magic Threads, at the end of the month. And we'll see you here next week on The Good Dirt. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.